Good. All right, good morning, River West. I'm gonna invite you to pull out your Bible with me and open it up to the Gospel of Luke. It's great to be together. Special welcome to all of you tuning in online this morning. Welcome to church. And as you're turning to Luke chapter 19, which is where we go this morning, I'm gonna take a minute and just go back to last Sunday and our service that we had and our announcement that we made about a position that we've come to on the issue of male and female in ministry. And at that service, we shared with you a position statement that's also available online. So if you, um, if you missed that service, you'll wanna go back and, and watch that service. If you haven't had a chance to go on our website, the position statement is right there on the landing page and encourage the church to read that. And I wanna share a couple of reflections. Here's the first thing that I wanna say to you, River West Church, I wanna say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your overwhelming response to that moment, to so much helpful feedback, so many gracious questions and comments and emails, so many conversations that have happened in the life of our church that we've heard about, that we've been a part of, members of our church body talking to one another, working this out. I shared last Sunday, this is something we're gonna work through together as a family. And so I, I have a couple things that I wanna ask of you this morning. Here's the first thing that I'm gonna ask of our church. Will you continue as you process this and dialogue through this? I need to ask that we continue to do that with grace. That we give one another the, the benefit of the doubt that we assume the best motives in one another, that we listen with grace, that we treat one another the way Christ has treated us. Let's continue the conversation. I wanna invite you to come back this Friday evening, 6.30, right here in our sanctuary. If you would like to do a deep dive into the scriptures, that's what we're gonna do on Friday night, 6.30. You can attend that live in person or you can tune in on YouTube. We'll be live streaming that. Bring your Bible. The whole evening is devoted to a biblical deep dive for those who are curious, wanna learn, have questions, have concerns. We understand that, we anticipate that. So join us, uh, you, you reserve seats for that event just like you reserve seats for Sunday morning worship and that, the reservation is already live on our webpage riverwest.org, and we're looking forward to seeing you Friday night, 6.30. But now what I wanna do is I wanna do what we always do here. I wanna get into the word. So we open your Bibles. Luke 19 is where we go. Verse 45 is where we begin. I can remember vividly the moment in my life where I really came to the discovery that in my Christian life, I was no longer calling the shots. That part of being in a relationship with Jesus means Jesus is now in charge. And we tend to remember those moments, don't we? Because those moments can be a little bit disruptive. <laughs> they can be disorienting when you come to the realization, wait a minute, I don't think I'm calling the shots anymore. I was a sophomore at Willamette University I was on my way to medical school. I was, I was in the pre-med track. Little known fact that you may not know about me, I have a 
undergraduate degree. I have a BS in biology, okay? Don't read more into that than what it sounds. I have a Bachelor of Science in biology, which I use every day in the ministry, okay? I have a, ba- I have a biology degree, and here's what happened to me. I was, I was studying biology. I was on the pre-med track, but I was also starting to do ministry, I was doing ministry in Salem, spending time with high school kids at a local high school through Young Life. And one day, I had come from North Salem High School where I'd had lunch with a group of high school kids and we were talking about Jesus and I was sharing the gospel and I was driving back to the Willamette University campus to go to organic chemistry, all right, which feels like a drive into purgatory. And as I was driving back to campus, I had this moment where the Lord started redirecting my heart. And the Lord was saying to me, you're not going to medical school. You're going into the ministry. And the reason I knew that this was a moment where Jesus was calling the shots was that I knew that I had to go home and make this announcement to my parents, all right? Mom and dad, you feel me, parents? I'm not going into, the, I'm not going into medicine, I'm going into ministry. And I knew in that moment, I'm no longer in charge of my life. What do you do when you realize that the authority of Jesus is beginning to press up against the authority of me? What do you do? What do humans do when, as, as, as a collective when we realize someone is making a claim to divine authority and that claim is beginning to push and press and challenge human claims to authority. That's what Luke 19, verse 45 is about. So will you look at it with me? Luke 19, verse 45 is the first verse in the final unit in the gospel of Luke. So from this point on, from 1945 all the way to the end of the gospel, we are now in what's called the passion narrative. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. And we pick up the story in verse 45, chapter 19. Here's what happened next. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. We'll keep reading in a moment because we're going to go all the way to 20, verse 8. But here's what I want you to realize. That text that I just read is the bridge that takes the reader from the triumphal entry to a criminal's cross. It's sort of like the bridge. It, it, it helps explain what's happening because the reader is asking the question, how could someone who is so popular and so perfect end up on a criminal's cross. When we last left Jesus, things were going really well, right? Triumphal entry, fanfare. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. 
People are worshiping the Lord. They're throwing their cloaks down in front of him. They're singing psalms that come from the Old Testament about a messianic king who will take his rightful place. Things are going really well. But the reader knows in only a few days, Jesus will be hanging on a criminal's cross. And the reader's thinking, how do we get from here to there? And what Luke tells us is, it all boils down to a conflict over authority. That's the issue. Jesus has only been in Jerusalem for a few hours, perhaps a day, and he immediately starts acting like he owns the place. Did you see that? He starts acting like he owns the place. The very first thing he does is he walks into the temple like it belongs to him. And he starts cleaning house. He's cleaning house. He's cleaning stuff up. He starts teaching with authority in the temple. He's acting like the temple belongs to him. And you got to try to imagine what this would have been like for the religious leaders who were the caretakers of what would this be like for them in this moment? Put yourself in their shoes. Maybe here's a way to help you imagine this. Imagine that one day you, you're driving home from work and you pull into your driveway and someone else has come into your house and they've taken charge, all right? And they're cleaning up your mess and they're cooking dinner in your kitchen and they're tutoring your children. Actually, this illustration breaks down because that sounds like a really great thing. But okay, so, but imagine they've taken, and they're, they're like disrupting stuff. They've taken over your finances. They're in your closet in your private affairs. Or imagine you get to work tomorrow and someone has taken your place of authority and they're acting like they're calling the shots now. How would that feel? See, here's the thing. In the Christian life, sometimes I think we assume we're totally okay with Jesus being in charge until suddenly Jesus starts pressing up against stuff and he starts cleaning house. And it, it'll happen unexpectedly. You're sitting in a service and you read a verse and the verse makes you uncomfortable. And you think, well, wait a minute. I don't like that. And maybe Jesus is just pressing slightly. You, you, hear, you hear something in a message that makes you uncomfortable. You're sitting in community group and the topic turns to something that you have always held to be dear. And suddenly you realize Jesus is pressing on something. He's trying to change something. He's cleaning up something. That can be disorienting. That can make us uncomfortable. How will we respond? We look at your Bible, that word drive out, that word drive out in verse 45 is much more aggressive than it sounds. <laughs> it actually means to cast out with force. In Mark's version of this account, Mark tells us that Jesus was flipping over tables. And in John's version, in John's gospel, John tells us that Jesus made a whip out of cords. So this is not the Jesus that we're used to. This is not the Jesus that we're accustomed to. This is a Jesus who suddenly has become angry. This is a Jesus who suddenly has become aggressive. So the reader's thinking, what's going on here? Well, the, the, the thing you need to realize is this was the court of the Gentiles. This was the place 
where the nations, the different ethnic groups of the world were supposed to be able to come and have access to God. And the religious leaders had turned it into a business center. It's almost impossible for us to realize the scope of this. Think 10 football fields. That's how big this space was. Think at Passover, hundreds of thousands of animals being sold for sacrifices. Money changers, you had to use their currency. So if you brought a foreign currency, you had to have it exchanged and the priests would, would charge you a fee. So they were making a lot of money on this entire business. And Jesus walks in and he takes it personally. He says, you've turned my house, my house. Think about how personal that is. Who does he think he is? He says, you've turned my house, which is supposed to be a place of prayer, you've turned it into a cave for thieves. Amazing. Amazing. He's cleaning house like he owns the place. He's teaching like he owns the place. We've already learned in Luke's gospel, remember we learned, Jesus, when he taught, he taught with a really unique authority. Jesus did not teach like someone who was commenting on the Bible. Jesus taught like someone who was the author of the Bible. And that's different. And it made the religious leaders extremely uncomfortable. And so they plotted. They thought, we gotta get rid of him. Do you see that? They said, We're gonna, we, we need to destroy this guy. But they had a problem. He was so popular. People are literally hanging on his every word. Something really interesting. Look at the list of the leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men. Those three groups, what you need to know about those three groups is they, they were always in conflict with each other. They never cooperated on anything. Have you ever heard the parable, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? That's what's happening in this moment. They realize we have a common enemy and we better get in cahoots because we got to figure out a way to take this guy out. They needed a strategy. What happens next? Chapter 20, verse one and two. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, same group, same three, came up to him and said, now look at this. Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? So what's happening in the temple is a clash over authority. That's what's happening. A clash over authority. They're thinking, who does this guy think he is? What right does Jesus have to do this? What right does he have to walk into our temple and start driving out the money changers? What right does he have to start teaching and preaching? That's what we do. Who is this guy? He has no credentials, no education. He's from Nazareth. What right does he have? And the questions, if you look at the questions there in verse two, what they're after, there's actually two sort of questions. One of them is, Jesus, what's the source of your authority? And the second question is, who gave it to you? Where do you think you get this right? The priests and the scribes and the elders had what we could call 
inherited authority, okay? Think about this. They had inherited authority. It was authority that had come to them from family ties and traditions. That's how they got it. It was an institutional authority. And the thing you need to realize is they had gotten used to it and they really liked it, okay? They really liked all of the power, all the prestige, all of the status, all the perks of having all that authority. And suddenly the very presence of Jesus presses up against that authority and they don't like it. They don't like it. So let me point out two things about verse two. Just look at that question. That question, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? Here's the first thing I want you to know about that question. That question is a universal human question, okay? Every human being at some point has to ask and answer that. That's not just limited to the contemporaries of Jesus, to religious leaders who are in conflict with Jesus. That's like a universal human question. Every single one of us, every human being eventually asks the question, who or what is the ultimate authority in my life? Who is it? What is it? Who has the right to govern? Who has the right to call the shots? Who has the right to tell me my purpose or my plan? Whether we're aware of it or not, we're asking that question and ultimately we're answering that question. The religious leaders didn't even realize it, but by asking Jesus this question, they had already assumed something. Think about it. They had already assumed we have the authority because we're asking the question. And this is true for lots of people. We make assumptions. Where is my ultimate authority? Where is it? But behind that assumption is are vast implications, okay? Friends, think about this. Who has the authority in our world to determine right from wrong? Who has the authority to determine truth from falsehood? Who has the authority to tell me what my fundamental identity is? Where is that authority? These are live questions in our postmodern world where people are asking these questions constantly. Now, some people are answering that question by saying, the only tolerable source of authority must come from within, all right? That's the common answer out there. What's right for me is right for me, right? Have you ever heard that? What's true for me is true for me and what's true for you is true for you. That's like the most common way that people answer this question. It's sort of an inner subjective, my fundamental identity identity boils down to how I personally feel about my fundamental identity. And the number one line that you can never cross is is to broach that, to bring your truth to bear on someone else. But does that actually work? Now think about this. How long before that source of authority begins to break down? How long before what's right for me begins to encroach on what's right for you? So it doesn't exactly work the way we think it does. Some people have argued that, it, that what is right or true boils down to majority opinion. And for many, many, many years in, our, in the Western world, we, 
we were a society that based morals and, and values on the Judeo-Christian ethic, right? So much of our democracy, so many of our laws are based in that ethic. But that ethic is going away and fast. And let me tell you something, it's creating a crisis because if you take away that standard of truth or that standard of morality, you have to replace it with something else that's actually authoritative. And some people have suggested, well, maybe it boils down to majority opinion. But wait a minute, think about this. What if the majority decides that it's okay to eliminate a people group based on their ethnicity or based on their religious stance or based on some other thing. They're wanted versus not wanted. What if the majority decides that it's appropriate to silence people who have a view that no longer fits with the new orthodoxy? Will that work? And so we have to ask this question. We have to answer this question. And if we, if we remove God from the picture, we have to have a substitute. But my experience tells me as a pastor and as a Christian, there is no substitute other than God. At the end of the day, Everyone is asking, by what authority? And each of us must answer it. Will I live under the authority of Christ in my life? Okay, here's something else I want you to notice. Look very closely at verse two at this question. This question is actually less than sincere, okay? <laughs> Meaning, the religious leaders are not asking this question because they were genuinely interested in Jesus's answer. Think about this. They were not prepared to turn over authority if Jesus gave them a really compelling answer. That was not gonna happen, right? We know this. This is a trap. Several years ago now, I was having coffee downtown with a, a man who had been attending our church. He was a really good friend and he'd been worshiping here and he was a skeptic about Christianity. He was not a believer. He was worshiping. He was a really sharp guy. We'd, we would have coffee all the time. He had studied some philosophy and he liked to grill me, okay? He, he liked to poke at me and we were having coffee one time and here's what happened. We were sitting there and he sort of leaned back and he asked me a question that I think from his perspective, he felt like this is like a zinger, okay? This is, the, there's, I'm gonna basically destroy the credibility of, of Christianity right now with this question. He throws out this question and he sort of sits back and here's what happened. I got really excited because I actually knew the answer to the question, okay? Which sometimes does not happen, right? And I was about to, Pummel this guy with Jesus truth, okay? And then as I'm about to answer, the Holy Spirit gave me a check in my spirit. And the Spirit said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And so I actually, here's what I said. I asked him a question. I said, I'm gonna answer your question, but before I do, I have a question for you. If I right now give you a very intellectually satisfactory answer to your question, will you immediately turn your heart over to Jesus in faith? And you know what he said? He said, are you kidding? No way. <laughs> I said, well, why are you asking me the question then, right? They thought they had a zinger. That's what was happening in this moment. 
They thought they had a zinger. Do you know what? I bet they were all night strategizing about this moment. What can we do to catch Jesus? What can we do? The question was a trap. It was not genuine. They knew if Jesus claims divine authority right now, we can accuse him of blasphemy. Who do you think you are? You think you're God? But they also knew that if Jesus did not claim divine authority, they could kill him for walking into the temple and doing something without the directive of God. And they thought, we've got him. We've sprung the perfect trap. But you know what? You should not ever try to trap Jesus, okay? Because he's the son of God. It's not gonna go well, okay? And here's what happened. Verse three, he answered them, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So sometimes a direct question requires a direct question. <laughs> Jesus knows their hearts. He knows. They're not interested in truth. This is not a genuine inquiry. This is not a pursuit of what's ultimately true about my identity. And so he felt no reason to give an account for himself. And what he does is he actually takes back control. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? In other words, go back to John, the Baptist, in the desert, baptizing. And here's what I want to ask all of you. Was, was John doing ministry under divine authority or not? And the thing is, the religious leaders knew that Jesus had trapped them. He knew this was the perfect trap. Look what they say. They discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? In other words, to admit divine origin for John the Baptist would be to expose the fact that they had not responded to John the Baptist. They had rejected John the Baptist. But then he goes on, but look at verse six. But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. In other words, if they reject divine authority of someone who was this popular, they knew the people are gonna crush us. John the Baptist was seen as a hero. He was a martyr. He'd been killed by Herod. The people loved John the Baptist. And the religious leaders know, if we reject divine authority for John the Baptist, we are going down. The people will say, how can you possibly question someone who is clearly God's prophet? So what did they do? They chose fear of people over fear of God. They chose self-interest over God's interests. They chose tactics over truth. Look at the word in your Bible where it says they discussed. I think it's right there in verse five. That word is a really interesting word. That is the Greek word for syllogism. It's a really interesting word. It means to calculate. It means they, they pulled together and this is, here's what they did not do. They pulled together and they said, what is the truth about this situation? We, we care about the truth. That is not what they did. They pulled together and they said, we need a strategy. This was like a game of chess. 
This became, this reveals the hearts of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They were not interested in truth. They were not interested in genuine inquiry. They had no desire to figure out, is Jesus actually God's Messiah? They were totally disinterested in that. All they cared about was holding on to power. That's all they cared about. And so look what they said. So they answered, verse seven, that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Neither will I tell you. And what's gonna happen, when you come back next Sunday, we're gonna, what we're gonna see is that over the course of chapter 20, this, this problem for Jesus is not gonna go away. In fact, it's gonna ratchet up. It's gonna get more and more intense. So come back next Sunday to hear more about that. But here's what I want to do to close. What I want to do to close is I want to now take this to your heart, okay? I want you to think about your heart and your relationship with Jesus. And here's what I, here's what I want to remind you. In any true relationship with Christ, there will eventually come a moment where Jesus' authority will press on something and it'll make you uncomfortable. And here's what I want you to know. That's okay. <laughs> in fact, it would be weird and wrong and a problem if that never happened to you. If in your relationship with Christ, Jesus never makes you uncomfortable or makes you feel like you're not in control or forces you to clean house on some things, it's probably not a real relationship with Jesus because Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. If Christ had the authority to walk into the temple and flip over tables, we know he's got the authority to walk into my life and flip over tables when he needs to do it. And the question will always become, Jesus, am I open to you doing that in my life? Do you have control? Do you have control?